Proctor here with a few announcements before we get into this episode. First, I am happy to announce that this episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. If you are looking for high quality videos on closure, PurelyFunctional.tv has you covered. Eric Norman walks you through topics including an intro to closure, to more in-depth topics such as core async, and includes lots of exercises along the way. The videos are also available as downloads, allowing you to watch offline at your convenience, and previews of the videos are available on the site. To get your copy of the videos, go to http colon purelyfunctional.tv slash geekery and use coupon code geek to get a 25% discount on everything. And make sure to thank Eric Normand and purelyfunctional.tv for being a sponsor. Second, I want everyone to know there is still time to register for Erlang Factory San Francisco. The Erlang Factory is the largest U.S. event dedicated to Erlang programming language. It will take place on the 26th through 27th of March in the San Francisco Bay Area and will be accompanied by training sessions on the 23rd through 25th of March and the 28th of March through the 1st of April. Get ready for over 50 speakers, including inventor of Smalltalk and Turing Award winner Alan Kay, Elixir creator Jose Valim, Erlang inventors Joe Armstrong, Robert Verding, and Mike Williams, Haskell and QuickCheck co-inventor John Hughes, Seven Languages and Seven Weeks author Bruce Tate, O'Reilly and CS professor Simon Thompson, creator of the Parallelaboard Andreas Olofsson, and many more. When registering, use the code FNGeekery for a 10% discount. Make sure to go to http colon www.erlang-factory.com slash sfbay2015 slash home for more information and register. Lastly, I will be presenting an introduction to Erlang workshop at LambdaConf 2015. LambdaConf will be taking place on the 22nd through 24th of May in Boulder, Colorado. LambdaConf has also graciously offered listeners 10% off registration when you use the code lambdaconf-functional-geekery. I look forward to meeting you there. Welcome to the 20th episode of Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Eric Merritt. Eric, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I've been banging around the Erlang community for a very long time, since about 2000 or so, and doing a ton of coding in Erlang. I've done a fair number of open source projects, sit on in the day for those of you that remember it, most lately, Relics. And I'm one of the co-authors of the book, Erlang and OTP in Action for Manning. And I'm a very opinionated engineer. I think that covers everything. <laughs> we met down because I managed to get to Erlang Camp in Austin in October of 2014. And I had a conversation with you at a couple events after in the evenings. So I wanted to get you back in a little bit to talk about some of your Erlang experience and some of the other stuff you're working on now, but how did you get into slash discover Erlang? What was the story around your first experiences and kind of coming across it? So back in 98, 99, I was a young programmer and realized that I wanted to write a game. And the only language I knew at the time was Java, and maybe a little bit of Perl. And I realized immediately that Java was not the right language to write anything useful in. And so I was opinionated. And so I started looking at languages. And I went through a bunch of languages. I found Forth, I found Lisp, I found OCaml, I found Erlang, I found IO, and just small talk, tons of languages. And then I remember the first time I happened upon, and that, that actually started like a five-year, I don't know what to call it, like bacchanalia of language digging. It was pretty fun. I never wrote the game, but I discovered a lot about languages. But I happened upon Erlang. And I realized that the first time I looked at it, I was like, oh my god, this is horrible. It's way too different. How can anyone code in this? So I left it aside. Since I was looking for things that would allow me to program parts of the game concurrently, I mean, I was digging deep on concurrency and this kinds of thing. I kept coming back to getting back references to Erlang. So finally, after literally after like four or five months, I was like, okay, I'm going to go try giving this Erlang thing a shot, right? And I started coding in it, and I pretty quickly got over this syntax and realized, like, holy crap, this entire model just works and works well. And started digging deeply into Erlang. This was, like, late 99. And then I started to think, well, there's this thing called OTP that you really need to understand to write code in, in Erlang. 
and there was almost no information about OTP at all. So I get on the list, and I, I think I talked with a bunch of people. I talked with Richard. I talked with Joe Armstrong. And this was when there was like 20 people on the list, right? I said, what is this OTP thing? And they explained it to me, and I finally got it. And that's kind of like, once I started getting the full stack early, that's when I started actually doing a fair amount of stuff in early. I was doing a lot of coding. I was pretty active back in the day. I met Francesco, who most of you guys associate with Erlang probably know of, at least in 2003. And then around 2004, 2005, I started actually coding in Erlang as got paid to do it. And then pretty much from there until pretty recently, I've been doing most of my full-time coding in Erlang, up until about a year ago. And Martin Logan, one of your co-authors on the Erlang and OTP Action Book, and he kind of reiterated that same thing of finding documentation about Erlang was tricky. It was horrible until pretty recently. But he said that was one of the motivations of writing that book was trying to figure out, like, I've seen a lot of bad Erlang. Yes. Here's, I get back to your opinionatedness, I guess. It's yep. not, Here's the right way that you should be writing some of this Erlang stuff, right? Yeah. I think there's a lot of projects out there. Even today, when there's so much more information, there's a lot of projects out there that are people discover Erlang and say, this is great, and they don't learn OTP for whatever reason, and they end up re-implementing a core version of OTP, right? It's kind of like the old maxim for list, like any, who has a green spot, any sufficiently complex program becomes a poorly implemented buggy version of list, And that's kind of a truism. And the same is true kind of Erlang. Any implementation of a large system in Erlang that does not use OTP ends up with a buggy, poorly implemented version of OTP. <laughs> so you still see tons of really bad code out there. But to be fair to those people, you see tons of really bad code out there in general. So it's not unique to Erlang. Yeah, that's one of the things I found was just there's the syntax difference, there's the structural difference with the way you lay out stuff, and then there's the conceptual difference of thinking and processes. Yeah. And when you try and combine all of those together and learn them all at the same time, it makes that kind of onboarding ramp a little trickier than it would be just moving to some of the other languages where it's like, oh, the language is just the different thing, but thinking of it is still the same, whether it's Java or JavaScript or Ruby or some of these other common languages. It helps if you have other functional languages under your belt, but most people coming to Erlang don't. I think that's unique about functional languages is that Erlang has a driver that is not curiosity, right? People come to Erlang because they want to write fault tolerant scalable systems. So a lot of times they come from broken languages like Ruby or Java or C or C++ into non-broken languages or less broken languages like Erlang, and that impedance mismatch is just really stupendously difficult. And then when you add on that to that, not just the transition to, to functional languages, but you add on the like paradigm shift of current languages and, and the models of how to build large-scale systems in that, and it just becomes too much. So people that make that transition and don't kind of pick up the OTP, follow the models until they know enough, they're basically screwing themselves. I always use the model, we tend to teach Erlang incorrectly. We teach Erlang and then we teach OTP, when really we need to teach OTP first and then Erlang, so to speak. For example, in your code in general, unless you're an expert, if you're using a raw message, if you're using a bang, you're doing it wrong. I equate it to using assembler when you're coding in C, right? There are times when you're an expert, when you make a decision to drop into assembler, and that makes sense. However, when you're a novice, almost every time you decide to drop into assembly, you're making a mistake. Same is true of Erlang. You're coding in Erlang, and you're not using, for example, a gen server, and you're doing a raw message bang, it's highly likely that you're doing it wrong. You probably shouldn't do that until you have more experience. <laughs> that was one of the things your book helped with, learning Erlang, was getting that grasp of what OTP handles and how to structure things. Yeah. And then it seemed like where it got left off was then the understanding in deep realization of how to think in processes and think in those terms of, yes, processes are cheap, go spawn them easily, but to actually take that to heart is seems like that other trick. Yeah, to take that and actually build a system on it is a whole other thing, right? It's pretty easy to build a concurrent map in Erlang, and that's actually really useful and it's good to know. It's a whole different thing to build a set of services that are going to serve 100,000, a million people a day or something like that. That was one of the things, just reiterating going through Erlang Camp and stuff and having those conversations with you all helped start to set that foundation of, it's like, yeah, I got Erlang, I get the language in concurrent means at the granular level that it should be versus just, yeah, I get all web requests are concurrent, but really, is there parts of stuff inside of that 
that are really concurrent processes as well. Right. Right. Exactly. But you've taken and applied a bunch of other stuff on top of Erlang because you were part of the Erlware organization and you've done some common libraries and things like Relx, but you also took on Joxa with a Lisp on Erlang too, which is not Erlang, but it's still using that Erlang VM, right? Yep. So the main thing I love about Erlang isn't actually Erlang. It's Erts, right? It's Erlang Runtime System, the, the VM. The VM is brilliant. There's no way to get around that. Erlang, the language, leaves actually a fair amount to be desired. And Joxa is kind of one avenue to to approach that. One of the massive wins of Lisp is syntactic transformation, macros, Lisp-style macros. For those of you that are unfamiliar with them, Lisp-style macros and C-style macros are completely different things. C-style macros are find and replace macros. Lisp-style macros are a manipulation of the actual AST of the language before compilation. The maxim is that in normal languages, you kind of build the problem space down to the language. So if you dumb the problem down, and that's not quite accurate, you reduce the problem until it's simple enough to implement in language. In Lisp, you build the language up to the problem space, then you address your problem. It's fundamentally different and much more powerful approach to writing software. So while I love the Lisp approach, I didn't want to give up the Erlang VM, the Erlang VM. So the approach I took was simply to write a Lisp on top of Erlang. And that worked out fairly well. It's actually a nice little list if I do say so myself. And I'm a little biased in that. <laughs> and AST, for those who haven't heard it, is the abstract syntax tree. Yep. It's basically an intermediate step used by compilers to transform a language into whatever the compiled code, whether it's machine code or bytecode or what have you. And usually, actually, in most compilers, there's a set of those transformations. You go from one AST to another AST, and you're kind of massaging the logic from the human language implementation to a set of transformations to different ASTs to the machine implementation. In Joxa, it goes from Joxa syntax to the Joxa AST to the high-level core Erlang AST, and then the Erlang compiler takes it through several AST transformations until it gets through Erlang bytecode. Compilers are pretty awesome if you're... Uh, they're worth understanding. And with the Joxa, it still is able to interop with all the other Erlang code as well, right? So Joxa is actually a really thin layer on top of a language called Core Erlang. And Core Erlang is a much simplified version of Erlang that is even more functional than Erlang. And it's actually, if you look at it, it's actually a really beautiful list. So Joxa is really like a human-readable syntax plus a macro system on top of Core Erlang. So because Erlang itself compiles to core Erlang, there's no impedance mismatch between Joxa and Erlang because they both use that mid-tier middleware language, essentially. So what else about the Erlang runtime system is it that you love that Erlang doesn't necessarily get? Because you mentioned the macros, and the Erlang macros are more the C-style macros. Yeah, Erlang are simply found in find and replace macros, which is a, a bit sad, but it's, you know, considering that when Erlang was created, that was common, it kind of made sense. Merlang has a little bit, something that's a little bit more interesting, a little bit more Lisp-like, which is parse transforms. They allow you to manipulate the AST, but they're much harder to use, and they're not actually common. They introduce a kind of a level of indirection on locality into your code that you most of the time don't want to use. So there's a lot of things I, I love about Erlang, the language. There's a lot of things I don't love about Erlang, the language. One of it is its lack of typing. For example, I'm a big fan of Henley Milner style type systems that you see in the various MLs of Camel and SML and those kind of things in Haskell, among other languages. And the fact that Erlang languages have that is, I think, a huge problem. Now, we do have Dialyzer, right? Costas did an extremely good job of providing that tool to the community. If you're not using it when you write Erlang, you should absolutely be using it. And there is no excuse for that. If your excuse is, oh, well, that's too hard to use when I'm first learning, no, it's going to help you learn better. Put down your compiler, turn on dialyzer, fix your problems, and go from there. I cannot emphasize that hard enough. Any reason not to use it is an excuse. Stop making excuses to write bad code. Write good code. Use dialyzer. Okay, on to the task at hand. So dialyzer is really great, but it uses a method of typing that costs is called success typing. And what it means is that it guarantees contracts for the things that it can figure out, for the types that it can figure out. And it checks those and validates those. But for the things that it can not figure out, which is quite a bit because Erlang at its core is not a type language, 
And there are big parts of even the core runtime that are not typed at this point. And there's libraries that aren't typed and this kind of thing because Erlang doesn't force you to type it. That there's a ton of things that it's not checking. So while Dialyzer is a kind of like prerequisite for getting a minimal type constraints in place, it's not a replacement for a type system. So I think that is probably the biggest missing piece to Erlang, the language, in my opinion. The rest of the language, I actually don't have any problem with at all. It's got a small set of simple types that are all fully serializable. It's immutable, which I think is a very good choice, and it exposes that immutability to the user, which I think is the right choice. I like Elixir a lot, but I think one of the big mistakes they made was to hide immutability. Now, it's still got immutability underneath the covers, but the compiler does some magical transformations to make it look like it's mutable when it's not, and that leaks into the language in a in kind of a nasty way. But most of the rest of the Erlang language I actually don't have any problem with and like quite a lot, but I miss that type system. If you think about it, type systems are a logical movement for compilers. Back in the day, we literally had humans writing machine code, right? And then we got the first most simple compilers, and we moved a bit of that complexity onto the machine in the form of a compiler. So we developed this thing that was very assembler-like, and we converted that to machine code so that it could be a little bit closer to the human and the computer could do a little bit more of the checking. And then we got into even higher level languages like Fortran and Lisp and these kinds of things. And from that, eventually we got to kind of the next level, which was, I'm going to call the next level, which was garbage collection, right? Where in a lot of languages, we've moved the complexity of resource management to compiler where it should be away from the human. Because while the human can do it, most of the time the runtime system can do just as good a job and take a lot of that low-level, fiddly work off of the user. I think type systems are essentially a next step in that. Managing all the type contracts in an implementation is a fiddly, annoying step that a human shouldn't have to do. We can offload that work to the compiler, and we should. I mean, there's a few languages where we are, and I think that is going to become more and more the standard rather than the rule. With some exceptions, no one's really making languages anymore that don't have a garbage collection system. It doesn't make sense. I suspect in, it's probably going to take a while, I'll say it's a huge amount of time for garbage collection to reach this point. I suspect at some point we're going to stop making languages that don't have a fully inferred, fully constrained algebraic type system. That was one thing I heard about Erlang was, and you've dug into the runtime system a little bit more, but the concept of it being dynamic had to do with some of the features that Erlang was trying to provide as well, of being able to reload and have multiple versions in the contracts. But is that something at the ERTS system, or is that something at the language system, or is that just more lore that's not... I would articulate that. I would, I would chalk that one up to more lore than anything else. Now, at its core, Erlang is actually typed, right? Um, the individual values in the Erlang runtime system have types. They have type flags. We know what types they are at runtime and at compile time. Now, I will grant that runtime code reloading would be harder with a type system because you would need to fully describe in some way both the previous type and the new type in a way that's coherent and move between them, right? But it's not a bar, it's really kind of additional work that would need to be done to have a type system on top of Erlang. One of my aspirational goals is to actually do something like I did with Joxit, write a language for the Erlang VM that is fully typed. I think that would be a massive win. I don't know when I'll have time to do it, to tell you the truth. But I like the idea of it. It's something I keep in the back of my mind. Is this, As soon as I'm independently wealthy and have uh, you know a year or so of free time, I'm going to do that. <laughs> If some company's looking for it, they just need to call you up and say, hey, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I will fund you to go do this for us. Yeah, and you would Fund me to go do that. I, I'm on board. <laughs> and part of the lore may have just been there are static types to a sense because the data types that Erling provides are that handful, you know what, that dozen yeah. or so data types that you can't create. You just create combinations thereof, but... So I suspect, and this is just me guessing, right, that that comes really from this idea we have in the programming community where statically typed systems are kind of bad for exploration, for doing things where you don't really know the full extent of what it is you have to do. We draw up a line a lot in our heads where dynamically typed systems, like Ruby and Python, this kind of thing, they're better for exploratory programming, and OCaml, SML, Haskell are better for well-known problems. 
So I, I think that's probably this idea that dynamic typing is looser and looser means less coupling is where that comes from. My supposition is that's a load of crap. That's not true at all. It's a, uh, I warned you guys I was opinionated at the beginning, but that's an excuse for not using types, right? The same amount of work happens in both cases. Absolutely. If you're doing a good job, you're going to do just as much work in Ruby or Python or what have you as you're going to do in OCaml or Haskell or what have you. The difference is distribution of that work. In Ruby, Python, whatever, the final work is at the end when you start testing and you start running in production that falls over all the place because you forgot that the type you expected is not the type that actually existed or you made a change somewhere that you forgot to make the change somewhere else. So you have to work through all that at the end, right? But at the beginning, it feels like you're programming a lot faster. Whereas languages with a type-inferred, strategy-type system, that work is distributed throughout the time in which you're doing the programming, right? So it feels like you're going slower because you're doing more work up front, but you're actually essentially going at the same speed. Now, what actually does happen is that a lot of times in dynamic-type language, you haven't caught all the edge cases. You never fix those, so you never have to do that work. But guess what? That's also a bomb that's waiting in your code to blow you up. Whereas statically type systems force you to address all of those problems before you can actually compile the code. So you end up doing more work, but the thing that you deliver is actually complete. And there are no gotchas, at least in terms of structural typing, right? You didn't use a field that doesn't exist because you can't. You didn't make a change in one place and not in another because you can't. Whereas in the other language, you didn't hit that when you first deployed. But the likelihood there is also that you're going to hit that, you know, in a month when somebody executes a line of code that you didn't expect and your system falls over and you get woken up at 2 in the morning, right? So the work's the same, it's just distribution is different, and therefore because distribution is different, the way we feel when we write the code is different. So in any case, people tend to think of Erlang as a platform, like Erlang and Earth is a platform that doesn't lend itself to static typing, when that's not actually true at all, in my opinion. I think that comes from that idea. Along those lines, was it's what I've heard is the prototyping fast iteration of just proving out that idea, whereas when you're statically typing, you don't necessarily do that as much because you're having to think a little bit more in front about what your contract is, essentially. So, so you can and should do that in statically typed languages, and you do, but you do have to think about it more, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. That's my supposition. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily that it was a good or a bad thing, but it was more that difference of not feeling as fast is because you're actually having to think about what the contract is yes. at a broader level than a very fine-grained level. Yep, exactly, exactly. So in any case, I think with caveats, Ertz actually lends itself to a static type system. I mean, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. It certainly has all the type information there. There's no reason not to use it. We even have a way to store that type information now that we've got specs in Erlang, which I guess is not now. It's been there for a while at this point. And they're actually stored in the Beam files cells. The one place that is not optimal is that because Erlang's not designed for types, it's not going to take advantage of all that type information. Hopefully it will over time, but for now you don't get the runtime advantage of a statically type system, the, the performance advantage. That certainly doesn't mean that you can't lay a type system on top of Erlang, and it doesn't also mean that, that that would not be useful. Yeah, that was one of the things I was seeing just recently. I went back and relooked at, I guess it was one of Costas's presentations of four or five tools to use doing your Erlang development. It was like dialyzer. Was, if you're writing specs in your documentation, it was like just transform those into the spec preprocessor. Yeah. Well, you know, I would go further to that. I mean, I did before, and I'll reiterate this, because almost every time I've gone into a new company to bring Erlang into that company, the first thing I get is resistance to using dialyzer, right? They say, well, we don't know Erlang, and dialyzer makes us figure things out, So, and it's harder, so we're going to not use dialyzer. And the first thing I do is kick those people in the nuts, simply because <laughs> that's not really figuratively, because that's idiotic, right? There's no other way to do it. That is an idiotic statement. You should be using dialyzer from day one, from moment one of the first line of code that you write in Erlang until the day you stop writing Erlang code. And there's no excuse not to. So it's not a tool. It's not so much like, oh, if you're using specs and they're in the documentation. It's not like, if you're not using specs, use them. If you're using specs and it's in the documentation, stop being stupid and move it to the code. And if you're not using specs, well, really stop being an idiot or smoking crystal meth or whatever it is that you're doing that causes you to be stupid and put your specs in the code. I'm kind of surprised 
just because I've heard you and Martin, and I don't know about Tristan, who's one of the other members of Earlware, with some of the tools you have that thinking about it now and hearing you again, kind of like there is no kind of setup for getting Dialyzer there out of the box to make sure that, like, look, when you set up a project, Dialyzer is automatically included. Dialyzer is already set up with specs and things like that. So in any project that our tools generate, so back in the day, I had this compiler for Erlang called Synon. And Synon ran Dialyzer by default. It was trivial to do, right? Rebar doesn't because Rebar is a load of crap, right? It has been since day one. Unfortunately, Rebar got mindshare. And I think anyone that's used Rebar will agree with me that it is a load of massive pile of smoking crap. Now, I say that, I don't want to offend anyone, but it's just not a good compiler. It's great for the initial case. Some new guy comes in and says, I want to code something really fast. Rebar is actually a pretty good choice. But it's a really bad choice for anything above that. Now, the unfortunate reality is there hasn't been anything apart from that for a long time. And to be fair to Rebar, Rebar has gotten a lot better over the last few years. So Synon used to have the ability to trivially run Dialyzer. I think that Rebar now has a trivially run Dialyzer. And the new version of Rebar, Rebar 3, which Tristan is working on, and I would encourage you all to check out, is kind of a roundup re-implementation of Rebar that's backwards compatible, but includes a lot of the good ideas from Synon, and it allows you to do Dialyzer pretty trivially. It doesn't force it by default, which me putting on my Nazi engineer hat says it should, but it's there and it's pretty trivial to do. And that was just based off your whole strong typing stuff is... I would actually say it's based off just sanity, right? My opinions about the uh, strong typing are based off the same things. Like, Dialyzer will, to the extent it is possible, it will check that the things you're using are the things you expect to use. So if you're not using Dialyzer, what you're essentially saying is, I don't want it to be any connection between the thing that I'm manipulating and the reality of what that is where it was defined. I just want to go without knowing, you know? I want to make assumptions that are valid in my head. It doesn't really matter if they're valid in the code. That's essentially what you're saying, right? <laughs> so use Dialyzer. Sorry, continue. And part of that where I was going was, because of your strong opinions about static typing, and you should use Dialyzer, you've also started doing a lot with OCaml, which I have. kind of helps fill that void of strong typing language yeah, so I love Erlang. I love the Erlang runtime system. I don't think there's a better virtual machine out there right now in the current modern world where concurrency actually matters a ton, right? The reality of Camel is that it is a strict, statically typed language with full type inferencing that makes it extremely attractive, right? Historically, the problem has been that it was stupendously bad at concurrency, at doing concurrent things. So it essentially made it unusable. Recently, Jane Street has come out with a set of libraries that make it a lot easier, a core and async, that allow us to do a lot of Erlang-like things in OCaml. Now, the downside is that OCaml is still hard to get true concurrency. All this stuff is essentially green threads on top of one process. So you don't get an opportunity to take advantage of multiple cores like you can in Erlang, but you get a very wonderful property that when an OCaml program compiles, it's certainly all the typing is right, and this probability is it's going to work, right? One of the biggest problems I've had in relying in large systems, even in systems that use Dialyzer, is that as you have more and more people working on the system, the knowledge of the entire system gets less and less than any single person. So you, typing problems start to creep in, calling functions that don't exist, or calling functions that had three arguments but now have four arguments, but you didn't update them everywhere you need to. And that caused me in the past a tremendous number of headaches in writing large-scale production code. The same thing tends to happen in languages like Python and Ruby and all this kind of stuff as well. I don't know whether having messages makes that better or worse, but it certainly exacerbates it. And there's the, always the old argument that, oh, well, testing covers it, right? And the reality is that for whether it's for Erlang or for Python or Ruby or what have you, the reality is that if you're extremely good at testing, it will cover some percentage of it. But if you're in a statically typed language, you'll get all that, essentially, that type testing, that's type concern. You get it for free, and it covers 100% of it. So I've been doing a lot of OCaml work lately, doing a lot of my side projects in OCaml, simply because doing all that contract work, of letting the compiler doing it, and knowing that things are pretty much right after I give it a compile is extremely attractive to me. I want to spend my time worrying about the business logic, or the logic of the thing I'm coding, and less of my time worrying about catching the 
type errors that are always going to sneak into a program. Now, the caveat is that the Erlang runtime system is extremely, extremely good at concurrency, taking advantage of multiple cores on a box. There's nothing better than ERTs. You give that up writing in a camel. And that's a very clear cost. Let's be very, very serious about it. It's a very clear cost. My approach to resolving that has been, so I, I use AWS a lot. It's pretty easy to have a bunch of small boxes that have one core. So my approach to resolving that problem is just doing these big distributed systems where instead of having one Earth's machine running on a bunch of cores, I have a bunch of machines running on one core. It's a very different model of system, and there's still a bunch of places I would use Erlang over OCaml. But in that model, there's a bunch of systems I can write in OCaml, and it makes good sense. To go back to something you started saying earlier in that discussion was the larger the project, the harder it is to be able to fit everything in the head, and more likely you're going to mess something up. How much of that is the type system, and then how much of that is just poorly structured and not modular stuff? Because I'm thinking Erlang, you've got the ability to pull things into apps, either library apps or full-on running apps. And how much of that is the boundary between maybe not being fine, fine-grained enough in your apps and how much of it is, in your experience, lack of a type system? Knowing that you still have that communication between the apps. So most of it is actually still lack of type system, right? I like to think that I structure my Erlang systems well. I mean, and that's true to a greater or lesser extent, right? I think I do pretty well. Other people might think I don't do well, but... In any way, I'm probably better than average just given the level, amount of experience I have with Erlang. So they tend to be well-structured. Apps tend to have a single point of entry, a single API. Gen servers are always called via functions. I'm, again, a bit of a Nazi about those kinds of things. And so we still have problems as the systems grow larger and as the number of people get involved in that. You can mitigate that via dialyzer, of course. But there's still going to be places. I'll give you a great example of this, right? Let's say you have a gen server. You have a function that's serving as your interface that sends a message using GenServerCast or GenServerCall, and you handle that in one of your handle casts or handle calls. There's nothing there the dialyzer can do to tell you that that message you sent is actually going to be received correctly. Like, you could go change the structure of the message on either side and forget to change the other, and it's going to screw you. Or worse yet, you'll change it in one place, your peer will change it in another, you don't see it, and it's going to fall over at runtime. Granted, interline is going to be restarted, right? You're going to continue functioning, but it's still a fault in your code. It's still something you're going to have to address. It's still something that, even with good testing, have a tendency to fall through before you get to the end. So that's all in the fact that there's not a connection between those pieces. There's nothing to check it for you and not in poorly structured programs. That makes sense. That's a good example of clarifying where that it's... Because I've seen a lot of things where it's like, this app is too hard to fit into my head, but that's just because we haven't done modularity out in it, and it's one giant monolith and yeah, so in those cases, problems become much bigger, much quicker, right? In those situations, even a single coder is going to have problems. But when I'm talking, I'm talking, you know, 15 or 20 coders all working on the same thing or more. Usually, in systems I do myself, I still have that problem to some extent, but it's not really super painful. So when you start adding people, when the scope of the project goes big, gets bigger, it starts being a problem. And also, now that I've done a fair amount of coding in statically typed languages, I feel pretty comfortable after an OCaml program compiles and passes tests, right? And that's probably going to work. It passes tests, it's compiled, and the active compilation is a big validation. I don't feel that in Erlang. It compiles, it passes dialyzer, that's great. There's a minimal test for quality. It passes tests, again, a minimal like bar for quality, but can't walk away with that same kind of confidence that things are good, some value is good. Yeah, and the question was more from a .NET background working on a big, large suite of apps written in .NET. So C-sharp was statically typed, but still a lot of things and a lot of edge cases that that strong typing system would still miss, even though you got the types right. But Well, bad code is bad code in any language, right? It's really easy to write bad code in whatever language you want to pick. Yeah. For better or worse. Even in language with statically typed, it's really easy to write convoluted, bad code that's hard to maintain. Type system doesn't buy you anything out of that. Things that buy you things out of that is having a good development process, having peer review policies, making sure that no code gets into your canonical code base unless somebody else who's at least as good as you are looks at it, right? And then just not being an idiot. Like, study, figure out how to write good code, realize that good writing good code matters, and then apply those things to 
producing good code. So what are some of the other differences that you found in working with OCaml from Erlang besides just the concurrency and how you have to tackle the concurrency problems? In Erlang, processes are front and center, right? You have to code in that, and that's beautiful. That's great. But you want that. You want processes to be not just a unit of concurrency, but a unit of modeling the problem space. In OCaml, processes are not nearly as well-defined because they, and when I talk about processes in this context, I'm talking about async deferreds, the async monad in Jane Street. Go look at it. In the code that I've been doing, and my patrons have been doing, that is what we use to do um, processes, quote-unquote. Because it's not supported as a first-class function of the language, first-class member of the language, it's much less in-your-face than it is in Erlang. It tends to be much less apparent what is a process and what is not. And when you're like moving messages between like an async pipe, it's much harder to follow the logic. Now, you still get a lot of validation from the type system, but it's less of a model that you can use to structure. It's less of a model that you can use to communicate with your peers about how the program is structured. That's one of the clear wins on the Erlang side. It really is. Being able to use processes as the fundamental model of your system is a powerful tool. And I've seen a little bit at a very high level of OCaml, and I've seen some F-sharp, which is similar. Very, very similar. Very ML family. Yep. But I've also heard stuff about OCaml is both a high-level and a systems-level language too, right? Because I've heard some stuff going on about kind of how there's the the Erlang on Zen kind of stuff, where Erlang's split on all these small stuff. And then I've heard, like, there's some OCaml stuff that allows you to essentially get down and start replacing some of the C systems kind of stuff you're able to do as well, right? I think the point you're getting at, too, there's this modern, like, idea that I really, really love. I forget whether it's called microkernel or monokernel. The idea that you don't have an operating system, you take your app and you compile it down to a thing that can be run on bare hardware. It's what Erlang on Zen is, essentially. There's something somewhat similar to that called Mirage in OCaml, where they've done, literally with a few like shims, they've done all the systems programming in OCaml. You can certainly do that. Obviously, that's been done, right? And the guys that did it are brilliant guys. I wish I was half as smart as they are. But I still wouldn't call OCaml a systems language per se. Really, when you're talking about systems languages, in the current hardware state, you're talking about things where you can manipulate specific registers. You're talking about systems where you can manipulate directly specific areas in memory, interact with hardware, those kinds of things. You can't do that easily in OCaml. I mean, obviously you can, again, because those guys did it in something like Mirage, but you, you can't do that kind of thing. Now, a lot of people, when they say systems language, what they're really talking about is a language that's fast. And OCaml is certainly fast. If you look at, I mean, micro benchmarks aside, OCaml is perceived to be as a performant as C++, which is saying a lot given the fact that it's garbage collected with static ISIS and yada yada, right? So OCaml is fast. There are monokernel or microkernel. I want to forget the name of that. You have the ability to run OCaml apps on hardware via Mirage just like you can with kind of like Erlang on Zen. Now, I think the one big difference between those two is that when you run OCaml on hardware via Mirage, it's OCaml. There's nothing different there. When you run it Erlang on Zen, Zen is not the Erlang VM. It's actually a single-threaded VM that it's really a completely different code base. It can't take advantage of concurrence in the same way the Erlang thing is. It's actually got a lot of limitations, believe it or not, that JSTRAIN's async has. Single process, green threads, or in case of Erlang processor, monoplexed onto a single CPU, things like that. It doesn't invalidate the usefulness of being able to run a program directly on hardware, just you need to be aware of that when you're designing systems to run on Erlang on Zen. You can't sign the same kind of system to run in that context as you can on normal Erlang node. But in any case, neither of these qualify as system languages, and those are where the differences come in. Part of it was just more of with Rust and Go and things like that coming out, whether or not some of this stuff is really a competitor to those new system-style languages that are trying to edge out the C and say, well, where does OCaml fit in on that, and where does Erlang fit in on that kind of thing? OCaml and Erlang fit into the same space. So I don't think of OCaml as a competitor to Rust. I don't think of Go as a competitor to Rust either, to tell you the truth. I think Go and OCaml are kind of at the same place. 
But Rust is definitely targeted to run on hardware with direct access to memory, hopefully in a safe way, and direct ability to manipulate registers, and direct ability to write to individual locations in memory. All that kind of stuff, turn off the garbage collector, all that kind of stuff that you want to do in a systems language on the current hardware. I like to think that in the future we'll design hardware better so you don't need those things. But for now, on the hardware we have, OKML and, again, I think Go and Erlang sit kind of at a level above a systems language where Rust and C, and to a small extent, C++ sit more closer to the hardware. Okay. That was hearing about, I guess, the as you said, Mirage, but also knowing that Erlang is like its own operating system and running, yeah. being able to run directly on those telecom switches without anything really yeah. there. But now let's, let's make the difference between, so Erlang actually, even when Erlang's running on a host like Linux or Windows or what have you, the Erlang system acts as an operating system in its own world. And when you port, you're, you can port that operating system to hardware. Absolutely. That doesn't make Erlang a systems language, though, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, you can do some really interesting things, like ESL. They changed their name recently. Francesco's company has done some really interesting stuff running Erlang on embedded hardware, on Arduino and on Lego Mindstorms and this kind of stuff, right? In fact, Torben just gave a, uh, a really interesting talk kind of in that space. But again, that doesn't make it a systems language. Like, for a systems, this is what I would think when I think of a systems language. For a systems language, you would want to be able to do something like write the VM in itself, right? So for a language as a systems language, I could write an Erlang VM in Erlang and then run Erlang on top of that VM called bootstrapping. You can't do that. You might, I mean, OCaml, you could actually do that, right? You could write a compiler for OCaml, and in fact, that's what the OCaml compiler is into itself. But yeah, neither of those are systems languages. I realize I've been all over the place as we've discussed things. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's giving me a better rundown as well of just, because I had heard about some of that stuff with OCaml. It sounded like it was a little lower level than Erlang, but at the system interaction, but still a high-level language. I would say, yeah, it's high-level language is different from Erlang, but they're, they're trying to solve the problems in the same space, essentially. Now, on the related topic, to me, this running applications on bare hardware is stupendously interesting. I can't articulate how interesting that is. Most of the applications you're using, you don't need all the driver crap. You don't need all the services that are running. For example, when I design systems, I've been doing large-scale distributed systems for a while, I remove everything I possibly can. There's no SSH. There's only a very minimal data system. There's nothing on the box that needs to be on the box. And the reason you do that is because all of those introduce jitter, all of those introduce overhead, and all of those introduce additional opportunities to be compromised in case of attack. So if I've got a system that can run directly on hardware without the unnecessary operating system fun uh, function, I've got two things going on then that are really stupendously interesting. I don't have to worry about managing all those dependencies. I don't have to worry about vulnerabilities that they imply. And I don't have to worry about distributing all that big blob of crap I don't care about with the app, which is the only thing I care about, right? So I love, absolutely love to see systems moving into this space. And there are things like Mirage, which I encourage you all to go look at, or Lang on Zen, which I actually encourage all you guys to look at. I think they, I never, I don't know if they ever open sourced that or not, but they, I heard rumblings about that. Mirage certainly is open source. And actually, look at BSD kernels. Like, they're coming along, but there's a way to take, that is a, potentially a way to take an arbitrary application, even the normal Erlang VM, tie it to a BSD kernel, and run it directly on hardware without all the rest of the operating system. Like, that space right now should be tremendously interesting to anyone who's running production applications. It really should be. So what does that look like when you're managing and deploying those applications when you've done it in your experience? So it looks a lot like managing and deploying normal kind of applications, right? It just takes a lot of the steps and a lot of the vulnerabilities out. One of the ways to do that, one of the ways to do it in, in Mirage, and you can replicate this in other instances, is let's take the case of AWS. I hope all of you are familiar with AWS and services like EC2. You can essentially create an AMI, an AWS machine image, without an operating system with this RUMP kernel and manipulate it as if it was any other machine image. Declaratively deploy it with cloud formation. Spin it up, spin it down. It doesn't look any different from any other image. If you're in Tata internal data center and you're using something like OpenStack, same thing is true. It just looks like an image, right? If you're not using any of those two and you're kind of manually deploying, still you load that image onto your disk and it looks like an operating system. 
It's a little bit harder there because you've got to figure out a way to get it onto the disc. But it's the same thing. It just so happens that all the crap that you have to go in. So think about deploying software in general, right? Now we're really on a tangent. <laughs> but think about deploying software. You have two states of things you have to worry about, right? You have to worry about the state of the system. What are the versions of the tertiary software that is on your system and all are all those compatible to get to a good base platform, right? And then you have the chain of dependencies that you have to worry about for your application, the libraries that it depends on. If we're thinking like taking Erlang app, in Erlang, it's every app you're dependent, kernel, stdlib, SASL, whatever, all the way down to the version of the Erlang VM and the versions of the shared objects and libraries that are loaded into that VM, right? And so now you have two complete dependency chains you have to manage. You have to merge those chains, test them, deploy them together, yada, yada, using usually different methods. And so once you get employed, you have all this, usually you have all this crap on your operating system that you don't care about, that your application doesn't care about. It's only there because most of the time we don't go through the effort of removing them because the operating system vendor, whether that's Ubuntu or Red Hat or whoever, has made the default install have all that crap, right? By going with one of these applications that come under hardware, I remove an entire dependency chain, an entire class of vulnerabilities, and have one dependency chain that I can use, manage, and manipulate together. So things like Docker gives us a little bit of that because they let us manage kind of dependency chains as a group, but it doesn't take away that operating system. And that's getting rid of that is really the beautiful thing, right? We live in a space where we've kind of gone back to this old world. We went through this time where we wanted a multi-user system because hardware was expensive and we're going to run a bunch of things on us. So we need to manage those in place. And now we've gone through this virtualization place where hardware is still relatively expensive. It's a lot cheaper. Well, we don't really look at hardware. Hardware is a computing grid. We look at the virtualized pieces of the software, and things like Zen provide the interface for us. So we've kind of gone back to where we don't care about multi-user systems anymore. It doesn't matter in the vast majority of the cases. All we care about is running our app, and if we can get rid of all this crap that we no longer care about, we can get a lot of advantages. Advantages in our DevOps toolchain, in our dependency toolchain, advantages in reduced facilities for, for compromise, all those kinds of things. So I'm, I'm really excited about that whole space, if, you, if it's not obvious. <laughs> you mentioned hardware is getting a lot cheaper, but it also seems, and let me know if you find this or not, but you're getting, instead of having one computer before, you're essentially getting one computer with 32 or 64 com- different computer potentials on it because you've of all the different cores too, right? Yeah. If you think about it, like the, the modern operating system, more than anything else, is Zen. You have a hardware, you have a Zen down zero running on top of it, and you're using that to manage the stacks of apps that are running on top of that hardware. Sometimes you get them two, uh, two CPUs, sometimes you get them four CPUs, sometimes you get them one CPU, but it's really Zen that's providing that multiplexing. So when you have a full operating system running on top of Zen, it's kind of like lots of redundancy. Operating systems have all this stuff in place to manage all that stuff, and you don't need it. Zen's there. So we only really are using that for two reasons. First off, legacy. We're used to using that. It's only really now becoming part of the context that we don't need those, and we're still at a fault for tools. Tools haven't quite got to the place where they need to get to to make that truly usable to like Joe in the street, right? You have to be in the space to understand those tools are there and to figure out how to use them. That's going to change very quickly. It's already changing in some spaces. Again, Erlang on Zen is a great example of that. Mirage in the camel space is a great example of that. BSD Rock Kernels is an example of a tool set that's a generalized tool set that's coming, getting better and better over time. Lots of good things to think about, too. Yeah, pay attention to that space. Even if it's not of interest to you, this is where deployment's going in the next five years. And a lot of this seems to be tied in, I guess, with your interest in distributing computing as well, right? Yes. You well, Or they just happen to kind of correlate. No, they're intrinsically tied, but I wouldn't say they're tied to distributing computing. In the modern world, there's no separation between what's traditionally considered operations and development. They're the same. For legacy reasons, we still have a lot of coders out there that are like, I don't deal with operations because I'm a coder. And my response to that is, you're an idiot. Your coder operations now coding problem. And there's lots of guys out there who are not engineers who are like, well, no, operations is my space and it's not a coding problem. I'm saying, well, I'm sorry, but your job is no longer relevant. You should learn to code. <laughs> that, that, that's not entirely true. I'm taking an extreme viewpoint, right? There's always going to be space for operations folks. 
but that space is much narrower than it used to be. Historically, there were not software interfaces to all the stuff we were doing. You had to do it manually. In the modern world, there's software interfaces to all of this, and it's processes that are backed up by code. It makes it inherently a coding problem. So when we talk about like operations like deploying software, the reason I care about that is because it's intrinsically tied to software now. There's no separation. It's maybe more relevant to distributed systems than non-distributed systems, but it's still relevant to any system. I would say that if you can't do an automated process from the time you commit your code to the time it gets into deployment without a human touching it, you're behind the times and you need to be looking at that very, very seriously. And I'm serious about that. And that's true whether you're writing in Erlang, and Erlang may actually make that a little bit easier, or you're writing in Camel, or you're writing in C, C++, Java, it doesn't matter. Like that, if you can't commit code and have it appear sometime later, fully tested, fully validated, and running in production, like that's a serious problem. And part of where I was going was, just based off your interest in all of these things, do you have any good resources for people who are trying to catch up or stay up to date? Do you have any good resources that people should check out on some of these things? Yeah, so there's a few different things, right? So Mirage, you can Google for Mirage, Mirage OCaml. That's really interesting. Even if you don't ever touch OCaml code, just understanding what they're doing is useful. Erlang on Zen, send Google for it, right? BSD RUMP kernels, R-U-M-P kernels. You should read through what's going on there. You should take a look at AWS's cloud formation. This is the kind of declarative modern approach to managing deployment, and you're going to see... I suspect that you're going to see kind of like copies of that for Google services and Rackspace services and internal OpenStack, OpenFlow-based stuff in your data center. I would bet money on that. A good resource for all of that is DevOps.com. Just for full disclosure, Martin Logan is a partner in that space, and I blog on that space or write articles for that space from time to time. There's a lot of stuff going on there, but it's good to keep up to date on what's going on in the operations space and the DevOps space, essentially. So for that, those are the resources that I would look at for this kind of operations piece. In general, there's lots of information out there about continuous delivery, continuous integration. Just essentially pay attention to this. Pay attention to what's going on in the Chef, Puppet, Ansible spaces. If you don't know what Packer is, you should. Things like that. And any other good resources for some of the distributedness and thinking of processes for either designing an Erlang or as you're talking about creating these small little applications in OCaml and thinking about it. Like I've heard things about the Communicating Sequential Processes book by Hore and some of those others, but are there any other good things you'd point people to for? So that's a kind of book. It's a paper, but it's a good paper, right? Resources on just the actor model are hard to come by. You can certainly look at, there's several books out there on Erlang. Those are good choices. If you're watching this podcast, you probably have already seen that, right? Our book, Erlang and OTP, actually talks a lot about processes oriented approaches to building systems. It's worth taking a look at some of the other systems that are out there. Take a look at how processes are done in Akka, which is a Scala-based JVM thing, right? I think that Akka made a bunch of wrong turns. I think it's overly complex. I wouldn't want to build a large-scale system in Akka personally. I think that's another thing where Erlang got it really right. They have a really simple model. They stick to it. And one of the biggest problems in distributed systems is the exponential growth of complexity, right? The more complex your basic unit is, the more you're going to get a combinatorial explosion of complexity as you add other units to that. Akka has a lot of complexity. Erlang doesn't. I think that's a big win. But Akka is still really useful to look at. Look at Mozart Oz. Most of you haven't even heard of that. It's kind of academic, but it's an interesting approach to process-oriented programming. A variation of that is AliceML. AliceML is an ML, a, a process-oriented ML on top of the Mozart R's uh, VM. I don't recommend you build production systems on Mozart R's. I'm just saying, go look at it because it's interesting, right? This thing with, uh, with Gambit, there's a scheme out there called Gambit that is created and maintained by one guy. So again, I don't recommend you build systems on top of this, kind of because it's a scheme and also because it's like a one-guy project. But looking at how he did a massively multi-threaded concurrent system that compiles to native code is actually pretty interesting. Digging into the compiler and understanding how that works is actually a useful endeavor for those of you that are interested in digging that deep. Now, um, again, unfortunately, there's not a lot of like basic stuff out there for thinking about processes. And even Horror's CSP paper is absolutely worth reading, but it's pretty academic. And it's not really a good introduction to this space. The best introduction to this space, really, right now, is pick up one of the good basic Erlang books, Francesco's book, Joe's book, and work through it. 
and they're relying on VM, and you're going to get a pretty good introduction to process-oriented programming. I would even say do that before you start looking at async and OpenML if you want to play with uh, the async space. Even though they have a lot in common, it's just much clearer in Erlang than it is in OCaml or these other systems. Sounds good, because I know we have a lot of listeners from a bunch of different languages, and there's some of the closure people with the core async, but essentially breaking things down to the smaller problems and processes that don't have to be in order and finding that granularity is, seems like something across all of it. So the best way to think about this stuff, and it's, this has become a new buzzword, and I kind of hate that as a buzzword, but it's accurate. Just think about this as microservices, right? And I've been using this term for years. Extremely fine-grained service-oriented architecture. If you think about it as these microservices that provide services to the other parts of the application, you're 95% of the way there in thinking about how to structure these systems. It's like these really super fine-grained services that are providing facilities to other parts of the application internally within a single node, right? And that's a good way to think about this stuff. Those sound like some good resources, and I'm sure it'll open the door to a whole bunch of other questions as well. As and it's a fun space. All this stuff that we've been talking about is a really, really, really interesting fun space to play around in. Because I know just from talking with you at Erlang Camp afterwards, too, there were some other s- distributed systems kind of stuff that you were really excited about, but you couldn't talk about it just due to some of the stuff you were working on at that time. And But there's a lot there. Yeah. From the distributed system standpoint, look into like Google Eventual Consistency. Look at CAP, C-A-P. Look at gossip protocols or epidemic protocols. Like, understand what vector clocks are, right? There's a, a nascent language called Bloom out there that is about kind of aggregative distribution, aggregative implicit distribution. It's not, like, it's based on Ruby, so it's approachable. And it's an interesting model. Like, look at all that stuff to kind of get your head around what the distributed space feels like right now. Yeah, it seems like we're just going more and more that way. Just based off all the Amazon, like all the AWS and Azure and Google Cloud, and then everything else that you've mentioned with kind of going through microservices and that whole revolution of what does it take to be distributed in? So as much as the Linux kernel guys hate this, right, concurrency is the future. It really is. We've hit the limit of, for now at least, we've hit the limit of improved performance in single cores. And we're branching out into multiple cores now. And as an extension of that, multiple systems. So if you want to scale your systems in this day and age, they're going to scale horizontally, not vertically. And with that in mind, that distributed systems is the way we do that. And it seems like Erlang, the more I dig into OTP and how things, how it's working under the covers, they make a lot of those assumptions in. As you said, if you're building that distributed system, you're going to build a half-baked implementation of OTP. Yep, you are. Yeah, you're certainly going to do that in Erlang. You're probably going to end up doing that in other languages. And with every language, it's about trade-offs. They bring different values. So depending on what you're doing, some things are going to make more sense than other things. So you understand those trade-offs and make the right choice. It's about having that knowledge that you know where things could break and how things could break. So you can actually make trade-offs instead of just make default decisions, I guess. Well, instead of following the crowd, like you, your friend comes in, hey, this is a really cool technology. You want to be able to evaluate that, decide whether it makes sense for you, not be like, my friend's using it, so it must be awesome, right? It could be true. Maybe your friend's really smart, and like I have a good friend who's like a super smart. If he comes tells me something's interesting, I'm going to weigh that heavily. I'm going to look at it, but I'm still going to make my own decision about whether that's merited or not. That's the way you should be as well. Not you, but you all. <laughs> Is there anything else that we didn't mention? Anything else you want to bring up or promote or plug? Or I think that's most of the things. I'm going to start doing a lot more articles for DevOps.com. I haven't blogged a lot in recent history, so if you look at my blog, you see I've only in the last couple of years I've only written a few. Over the next few months, I plan to produce a lot of articles talking about exactly what we're talking about now. So if you're interested in that space, that's going to be a good place to go and get more information. So based off your last blog article, you've just been heads down on other stuff and not captured by the kingdom of Nounlandia. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You mentioned your blog and DevOps.com, but where else can people track you down and find you to keep up and find your resources? You can always find me on Twitter, um, Eric E. Merritt, my name, essentially. I'll be responsive. Sometimes it'll take me a few hours. You can send me an email. Same thing, ericbmerritt at gmail.com. I'll probably be responsive. In the short term, those are going to be two best places to get a hold of me. But keep an eye out for you on your blog, ericbmerritt.com, and 
actually keep an eye out for me at DevOps.com. For the next little while, I'm going to be focusing on the declarative approach to operations and deployment, because that's a place where I think that things can be a lot better than they currently are. And so I'm going to be producing a lot of information that's going to flow out through that. Any other stuff on, like, earlware that you might be putting on, or just kind of keep that as a feed in general? There's not much going on there in earlware right now. Tristan's been working hard on Rebar 3, and it integrates with Relux, which is something we worked hard on last year. So keep an eye on Rebar 3. It is a significant improvement in build and release management in Erlang, I believe. Sounds good. And, oh, finally, um, I'm probably in the next month or so, I've got a startup called Affiniate. We've got a um, GitHub, and I'll share the links with you so you can attach it. We're getting ready to open source a lot of OCaml code. It'll be released via GitHub, and we'll push it into OPAM and look for that in the near future. We think it's really interesting. And that'll be good resources for just checking out some of this OCaml for people who haven't been familiar as well. Yeah, exactly. We use async exclusively, so it'll be a hopefully a nice public, pretty easy to consume introduction to async as well. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo, and thank you, Eric, for giving your time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah, this has been enjoyable. I knew after the Erling Camp stuff, I was like, okay, I'll have to at least get a recording (laughs) talking to you, because I got a little taste of this stuff, but I was like, I've got to dig in a little more with some of this stuff that you've been talking about and that I got the hint of at Erling Camp. I, I recommend it. Well, until next time, this has been Functional Geekery. Bye, guys.